Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. Recently, I presented a podcast about a registry for dementia, and I'm pleased to present more podcasts on and around the topic of dementia and Alzheimer's, as this is an issue that is going to be the biggest public health care crisis affecting millions of people in some capacity. I recently sat down with a young Alzheimer's patient, Jeff Borgoff. Jeff was officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2016 and is an active patient advocate. I'm pleased to share this patient's perspective. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. It is such a pleasure to have you on today's program. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, no, my, my pleasure. Jeff, can we start with um, a little bit about your background? Tell us about yourself. Well, I'm a veteran of the uh, information technology world. I uh, was uh, about 20 years in IT as a uh, in various roles. Uh, my my uh, last role that I did was um, I was a uh, um, basically um, an architect or a, or a systems architect, um, where I would go into uh, our clients' uh, facility, understand their business model, understand their business process, and give them a technology solution based on the technology um, that we um, handle. Uh, within our company, so that's uh, pretty much the job that I uh, that I ended with uh, uh, before my diagnosis. So a career career in IT. Um, Software developer. One, everything I can't do. I love it. <laughs> it is true. It is true. So tell us about you know what happened in in 2016 and what led to your diagnosis. Sure. So prior to 2016, it really was more around 20, uh, 2015, um, because um, as, as many people know, and many, many more people don't know, um, Alzheimer's is a disease that uh, builds up over many, many, many years. Um, so um, I was unaware of the fact that I had Alzheimer's disease until uh, in 2015, I began to get uh, or I began to exhibit some forms of uh, neurological issues. Uh, first and foremost, you know, there's new memory memory issues. Okay. Because uh, unfortunately, um, the disease itself uh, targets the hippocampus, which is the, the the gland in the back of the brain that basically functions uh, with uh, with short-term memory. So there were memory uh, issues, um, there was uh, cognitive issues, uh, multitasking issues, process issues. I was beginning to exhibit some um, stress factors, um, but the thing that really kind of kind of jumped us you know, to the point where we were ready to do something about it was, um, or at least I was ready to do something about it, was um, I think it was prior to December in 2015, may have been summertime. Um, we, I was actually beginning to exhibit some physical manifestations of the way that the disease was affecting my brain, and that was with uh, facial twitching and drooping, and and uh, later on it, it, it progressed to sort of like full body twitching. So, so in a way, fortunately, uh, the neurological issues were manifesting themselves physically, so we got to jump on it real quick. Um, that began the process uh, that led up to um, my retiring from my work in December of 2015, mid-15, uh, I'm sorry, mid-December, where 
was basically um, diagnosed with what they call MCI or um, uh, mild cognitive impairment. That's generally sort of like the go-to diag diagnosis um, before they can get into a more succinct diagnosis under the dementia umbrella. So with the mild cognitive impairment, uh, and I knew that the, the neurologist was leaning towards, we knew at that point that she was leaning towards Alzheimer's. So uh, I was put out of work mid-December of 2015. Um, it, it was basically their suggestion because they, they really didn't believe the anxiety and stress was healthy for me um, at that point. I just, I, I really couldn't do the job I was doing anymore. It was, it just wasn't possible. Oh, un um, understandably so. So you really yeah. had all of these different um, symptoms and things going on that would cause stress, of course, um, and yeah. going to doctors and being told MCI. And so, so when were they able to tell you, actually, it's, it's Alzheimer's, especially as such well, a young person? That must have been such a shock to you. But um, yeah, yeah, so tell, tell us about that. Yes, and, and the way that they were accurately able to diagnose is through what they, um, they, they checked for the presence of the toxic tau protein in my spinal fluid, and that was done through a, uh, a lumbar puncture or spinal tap. Okay. Uh, they did find it. They found uh, a, a very small uh, presence of it. So that was kind of, kind of pushed my neurologist uh, over the, uh, the uh, you know, over the edge or, or to one side of the fence on, on the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And then from that point, I got myself into a clinical trial. And in, and in doing so, part of being in the clinical trial is that as part of the process um, to be accepted, is they, what they could do is they give you a beta amyloid uh, PET scan. Okay. And that, and that actually lights up the beta amyloid plaque in your brain. And... Uh, they actually found it in three locations of my brain, so I that see. was it's, it's conclusive at that point. I and see. The only the only other conclusive way to do it is postmortem. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, now, when you you said you uh, went into a clinical trial, was it offered to you? Did you have to do research and find the clinical trial? How were you able to get into a trial? Well, I immediately after I was diagnosed, after I went through the uh just the gut-wrenching um emotional uh reality of it, yeah the reality of uh. it um i got my I, I said i immediately said i'm going to do something about this so i started seeking out clinical trials and wow. <clears throat> i tried to get into a clinical trial in new york city um which really would have been very difficult for me anyway uh but uh, the, the clinical trials that they had there um, were uh, 65 and older. So I, I love telling this story, Valerie, because it's a, it, it really kind of goes to the heart of the hope that I have uh, with, with this, this disease. I was in my front yard and uh, I was uh, um, uh, just doing, I, I kind of kid about this, uh, just kind of doing what the homeowners do, just observing the grass. And um, my next door neighbor came out and said that, and did the same, and so we got to talking. He noticed that we had no longer had our one of our cars, and uh, it, was, it had been a while 
And he asked if everything was okay. And I told him he had to get rid of the car because I can't drive anymore. And then one thing led to another. And I told him I had Alzheimer's. And he said, you know, my wife just started working at a clinical trial center in, uh, in Tom's River, New Jersey, which, oh my is 10 minutes, which is 10 minutes away. And they're doing clinical trials for Alzheimer's. Valerie, I was in the clinical trial in two weeks. Oh, my goodness. So you were able to get a trial just because you got so lucky that you had the right conversation with your neighbor at the right time. You call it luck. <laughs> I call it something else. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I bet you do. I bet you yeah, do. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And, and, how, and how was that experience being in the clinical trial? Well, it was just absolutely phenomenal. They, the, if, if you've been diagnosed with, with uh, a dementia or you feel that you have a dementia, you get yourself to a clinical trial center or a memory center, and, you, and you're, you're found out to have uh, one of the, the, the more formidable forms of dementia, um, and you get into a clinical trial to help other people, they dealt, they take such good care of you at these clinical trial centers. I can tell you, they treat you like kings and queens Aww. because what, because they know what you're doing. They know that you're taking so much out of your time, um, to be part of this clinical trial. These clinical trials, um, we're not lab rats. We're far, far, far beyond, beyond that. And so when someone says to me, you know, I don't want to, going to the clinical trial because, you know, I don't want to be a lab rat. We, we are so far beyond that point when, when, they, when they go into human trials. You never have to really worry about those things. So you um, felt like you got very good care. I did. I got, I got exceptional care. And um, just knowing that I, am, I was part of the, something that will potentially save lives, or could potentially save lives down the road. And the reason why I say that is because even though the trial was closed, they, I know that they got a wealth of information. I know, I know they did. It's just, there's no way that they couldn't have. The way that they monitor us, the, the way, the, the data that's expressed from the, the trial itself and, and fed back to, uh, to the um, biopharma, they, I know that they're going to use that information to, to help move the ball forward. It's for us, though, it, you know, the people who are in the trial, um, it's, it's always kind of gut-wrenching when they end. But you got to, you know, you pick yourself up by your bootstraps and move forward. And, you know, if you can get into another trial, that's, that's what you do. Um, if not, then at least, at least I can say that I did everything I could to try to help eradicate this disease. Absolutely. No, your contribution is enormous. The, they ended the trial, you said. Were you feeling better on the, on the, when you were in the trial? Yes. Yes. Okay. My, actually, my cognitive scores improved. Wow. And is this the trial that was uh, sponsored by Biogen and Azi? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, shout out to both those companies uh, for their um, extraordinary you know, work and their professionalism and their patient-centric approach and making sure that patients had an excellent experience in the trial. So, you oh, know, yeah. well they, done they, to Biogenesi for that. Yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, I, I know that these people want to save lives. I know that they do. I mean, that's just, I mean, why would they do this? <laughs> they want to save lives. Uh, but we have to get to a point where, um, I don't know. 
Well, you know what? But go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, um, Jeff, you know, you were saying how you improved in that trial, but unfortunately the trial came to an end. And so the question is, we don't know why, but you improved on it, and now you don't have access to that medicine. So that's that's very yeah. disappointing for you personally. And um, I know that we have you participating at our upcoming Patients as Partners Conference in March in Philadelphia, March 2020. And mm -hmm. that program is all about how can we capture the patient's voice in developing the clinical trial throughout the clinical trial process. Because, you know, I have no idea why the trial came to an end. No one wants it to come to an end, but there was a reason. But you know, it's possible that just in general, not specific to this trial, but if we could have more of that patient voice and an understanding of the patient, maybe we would design the trial differently or the endpoints differently or the inclusion and exclusion criteria differently. You know, it would make more sense for what we're really trying to achieve. And again, I just want to repeat, it's not specific to the trial you were on. I'm just saying in general. And that's why I'm so excited to have you at Patients as Partners, because your voice is so important and you can give that insight into what it's like to be in a trial. Absolutely. And I will appreciate the opportunity to speak more about that and in depth and express more of my feelings and my family's feelings and other folks who shared their feelings with me about about the end, the ending of our trial, but but more so uh, to exactly what you're saying is, you know, what should the endpoint have been for the Biogen aducanumab trial? What should the endpoints, you know, should we re um, take another look at the way that these endpoints are developed to separate, you know. Removing amyloid plaque and dangerous proteins, uh, uh, toxic proteins from the brain, exclusive from, you know, cognitive, subjective cognitive scores. You know, I, I think there's, there's two ways to look at that. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I think it can be both. Well, hence the, the importance of the patient voice. Yes. Absolutely. Jeff, what's happening now? I know that you've become a patient advocate. And uh, what are you doing in this space currently as a patient advocate? Well, uh, I continue to, to serve with the um, Alzheimer's Association um, and um, uh, at, at the national level, but uh, more, most of my work is done in regional level in, the, in the, uh, uh, what we call Region 13, uh, which is the or the Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, no, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware uh, area of our country. I work with the Greater New Jersey uh, chapter, and uh, I'm on uh, uh, the uh, board of directors there. I'm a, an alumni of the uh, Alzheimer's Association National Early Stage Advisory Group, and I served on the, the Congressional um, Action uh, Committee, uh, which basically uh, helps to uh, take our message to our state representatives and our federal representatives on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, once a year to talk to our legislators about things that are important to the Alzheimer's Association and things that are important to people living with dementia and also uh, more formidably um, things that are important to caregivers uh, for people who are living uh, with these various forms of dementia. So 
I'm actually keeping myself quite busy, Valerie. Oh, no, that's, that's, it's really inspiring to, to hear what you're doing and how you're, you're managing. It's really very inspiring. Jeff, how can people get involved with um, the Alzheimer's Association? Well, certainly they can. It's very easy to go to uh, alz.org. Simply go on there and find out that, how they can get involved. There's a there's a volunteer tab um, that they can go to that they can uh, speak to uh, other volunteer representatives in in their specific part of the country. Uh, I believe we're in all 50 states, and um, or they can just contact me <laughs> if you if you go listen to this to this podcast. Uh, I'm always looking, uh, I always look forward to helping people understand more about the disease and try to eliminate um, the myths, uh, the stereotypes and the stigma of the disease. So certainly um, give me a shout. You can reach me at Borghoff.com. That's B-O-R-G-H-O-F-F.com. And um, I, most certainly I know you're doing your uh, convention in uh, March, so maybe we'll see them there. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I, you know, somebody once said to me that dementia is the tsunami that's coming and that it will become the biggest public health crisis because as a, as a country, we're not really prepared. And I am the caretaker of someone with dementia. As, as you know, Jeff, we talked offline. And, yeah. um, and I never thought that was going to happen. And it did. And it's, it's incredible how you have to change your life as a caretaker and um, I'm there and I'm um, you know I'm in a good place but it was definitely a journey and a big uh, educational lesson for sure but it is such an important area of awareness in every respect from research to care and I am so lucky to have you as my guest today and I just want to thank you so much and just reiterate how important this topic is and that I look forward to welcome you at Patients as Partners uh, come March 2020. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, bringing my voice to the table here, and I'll see you in March. Jeff will be speaking at the Patients as Partners Conference on March 16th and 17th in Philadelphia. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. We look forward to bringing you more podcasts featuring patient advocates and more on the topic of dementia. For a full listing of our podcasts, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.